When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is part of my Motherhood Around the Globe series and will feature Michelle Acker Perez, who was originally from California but now calls Guatemala home. She works with a nonprofit organization while also raising four bilingual and bicultural kiddos, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post and Scary Mommy. She likes her coffee iced, her chocolate dark, and if packing 50 pound suitcases were an Olympic sport, she might just win. Michelle writes about motherhood, marriage, and life in between two cultures and countries. She recently hosted a series on Instagram called Perspectives Around the World During a Pandemic. 10 women living in countries around the world shared what it was like to be in their respective countries, which seems pretty cool. Hi, Michelle. We're so excited to have you today. How are you? Good. Thank you. It's so fun to be here. If you don't mind giving us a little background as to how you ended up in Guatemala and then staying there to then have the birth of your four children. Sure. So I'm originally from California, and I was actually a high school teacher in California, and I taught in the predominantly Latino classroom and area. And so I came to Guatemala to learn Spanish, gosh, many, many years ago, 2007, and I just kept coming back. I loved the culture, the people, the language. And so I kept coming back during my summers. And on one of those summers that I was here learning Spanish and volunteering, I met my now husband. We were just friends. And then I actually moved down here for a teaching position. It was a year teaching position. I took a leave of absence from work. I'd always wanted to live and teach abroad. And I kind of knew if I didn't do it, then I wouldn't do it. I took a leave of, leave of absence from work and moved to Guatemala for a year. That was in 2010. And at the time, I didn't even tell my now husband. We were just friends. But when I moved down here, I started teaching. I worked at a school where he had formerly taught at. And we quickly kind of reconnected and became no longer just friends. Um, so we started dating the year that I was here. And gosh, that was 11 years ago. We got married the following year and then had our first daughter in 2013, son in 2017, and then the twins were born in 2019. So I moved down here, long story short, 2010, and still here 11 years later. Wow. And you guys like it there? We do. My husband's from here. I should have clarified, not to be assumed. He's from here. And so he was always open to coming to the US because I had a teaching job there. My family is still there. But I really liked kind of the culture and just the pace of life in Guatemala. Mm, yeah. I think there's a lot of privileges for better or worse that I get 
kind of living here, I'm able to bring, and I think sometimes for immigrants or Latino men and women who are moving to the U.S., they're not afforded those same privileges. And so I think it would have been a little bit trickier for him to find kind of meaningful work and jobs there. And so we just kind of decided early on that we wanted to make this home and we're, we're still here. So are you still working there? Yeah, I stopped teaching when my daughter was born. Teaching is a not as flexible of a career and job with little ones. Yeah. And so I took a more administrative role with a nonprofit that we still work with. And so my husband's on the field. He's a project director. And I do most of the donor relations, social media communications. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. So I always love to start these off with just a, an overall experience, the experience you had you know, with prenatal care and then postnatal care with your four babies. If you want to just give us a brief history of, you know, how many appointments you had, how many ultrasounds were involved, and then, you know, whether you chose to birth at a hospital or a birthing center or at home and how that experience was. And then of course, you know, what the postpartum experience was like. Sure. So um, I will give a caveat. I always feel a little bit just gracious or wanting to proceed with caution as an as a foreigner, as an expat here, I know that my experience is not the norm probably for kind of all of Guatemala. I think there's a lot of privilege in being a foreigner living in a developing country. So I'll speak to my experience and then maybe share a bit about kind of the general like Guatemalan, you know, practice and access. So early on, I kind of knew that I just have always loved birth and lean a little bit more into yeah, just kind of natural medicine. It's not the right word, but just wanting to understand more how the body works and how birth kind of has happened for centuries. And so I've always liked that, like leaning a little bit. So I looked for a midwife early on with my first pregnancy with my daughter and found a wonderful German Guatemalan midwife raised in Germany, was trained in the US and has lived in Guatemala for 25 years. She has a private birth center and has attended, I don't know, thousands of births over the years. I'd heard wonderful things about her. And I just knew, like, I had also heard a number of not as empowering and wonderful stories about, like, the national hospital and system. So I Mm -hmm. knew I didn't want to go that route. The national hospital, which is where most Guatemalans would give birth, is maybe more similar to, like, a U.S. hospital in the 1950s. It may not be a totally fair comparison. There's like a labor and delivery kind of ward or or area, but no no partners, no husbands, no no one else is allowed in with you. This is even pre-COVID. The birthing mothers admitted can often be in like one room with eight other birthing women and just doctors and nurses attend to the birth. There's a high C-section rate. It, it's a little bit of like, just get them in and get them out. So my sister-in-laws both had their children at the National Hospital and although they and their kids are okay, I think the birth experience itself was a bit traumatic. And I just knew I, I didn't want that. And it's not very common for foreigners or expats to be in the national system anyways. So there's a number of private hospitals that have really top quality care. They're uh, it's a bit more expensive, only available to Guatemalans who have a lot of resources. And they're very, I would say, fancy in terms of the, the type, of, type of care they can provide you know, medical intervention, kind of nicer rooms, but there's not a big kind of understanding perhaps, or even just natural birthing processes. There's a lot of like, they'll take the baby away after birth and like bathe it and make it look beautiful and even take photos of it, which is like a thing in these private hospitals yeah, for the parents, but not a lot of like just letting the baby bond and be on the, you know, mom's chest, like skin to skin. 
related cord, cord clamping, any of those things are not like general population practices in the medical field or like in parents' birth plans or whatnot. So I knew those were two options that I didn't want to pursue. So when I found the birth center, I just had a great feeling about it. She had great recommendations. And so, and I really wanted to, I wanted the option of trying for a water birth. I wanted as little intervention as needed. And so um, my husband and I did a birthing class with her prior to birth. And we live closer to Antigua, Guatemala, which is about an hour more or less drive from the capital city, Guatemala City, where the birth center is located. And the midwife also attends home births. And there's a number of women who I know who have had home births at home. I just am a bit of a pragmatist. I did not want to clean up anything. (laughs) And so I wanted to go to the birth center. And my midwife, I think, again, because we're not in the US, there are not as many like legal requirements. So we did, I mean, the standard prenatal, I think one appointment every month for first trimester. And then I think even one appointment a month through second trimester. And then third trimester, I think I did every two weeks, starting at maybe 30. Yeah, I guess third trimester every two weeks and then 36 weeks every week. But what I loved early on was that the entire focus was not just like, okay, let's check you, ultrasound the baby, you're measuring fine and go. And these were hour-long appointments. And so there was always a check just on how I was feeling like physically, emotionally as a person. There was always a check on just kind of what I was putting into my body, nutrition-wise, how I was feeling, just physically, exercise. So I was just kind of checking to see kind of the whole picture. And I liked that early on that, I mean, in general, I think midwifery care is, is focused kind of on the holistic kind of picture of, of, of the mom. And then, and early on, I mean, she would measure my belly. I just appreciated very educational. She would kind of teach and like guide my hand to let me feel where the head was. And kind of, I could like put my hand down below kind of the, the pubic bone and even like feels like this is her head. You can kind of feel it's engaged. She would just kind of teach me and kind of walk me through like what was happening. It was my first child. So I didn't know a lot either. And she didn't require any ultrasounds. I believe she did one early on just to check the pregnancy because I requested it. And then I don't think she actually did any other ultrasounds, but she welcomed, I was able, there's private clinics in town who kind of can just drive up or make an appointment at an ultrasound kind of tech and you tell them kind of what ultrasound you want. And so I did that, I think to find out the gender around 20 weeks. And then again, third trimester to check positioning. Again, my midwife though, wouldn't have required those. She is comfortable with a breech birth. She's really kind of, you know, she always checked the heartbeat, had a Doppler, um, you know, would measure and kind of looked at me more for symptoms. So she was very hands-off in a way that I felt comfortable with, but I wanted a few ultrasounds to kind of check the process throughout. And she actually didn't do any vaginal checks as well. Not until I think I was 39 weeks and I requested it. I kind of said, can you please check and tell me? like, (laughs) Let me know where I am. (laughs) Let me know where I am. And I just all along felt I'd had other doctors, other medical experiences here in Guatemala where I felt a bit of, whether it was because of language and culture or just because of practice, like not always my questions were welcomed or my kind of speed of how I wanted a procedure to happen. And so I felt really comfortable that the whole entire process before any kind of even, and I think for women who have any, maybe have any kind of trauma or just being in touch with your body, like having any medical prediction or always ask, is it okay? Can I, can I check? Like just, she would always say, can I, can I touch like before she kind of felt the baby mm, just very, nice, yeah. very caring and like sensitive to 
yeah, just the beautiful act that making a baby is in a woman's body. Again, that is probably not the norm. It definitely is not the norm in Guatemala. But that was, again, my experience having kind of a, a private midwife at a birth center. And again, my perspective is limited because I have never had a baby in the U.S., I've never like given birth. I've never been to, been, been to the pediatrician. <laughs> I've never um, had prenatal appointments in the U.S. But I do know from my sisters and friends that there is a lot that is just, I think, kind of standard practice. Like I never had to do the, the glucose test. I never had to drink the orange drink. My midwife required blood work at, I believe, 20 weeks, again, to check. I mean, she checked glucose. She checked sugar levels. She checked all the important blood things. So you didn't need to do anything at like the 28-week mark? No. So I didn't do any of those oh. like requ- any of those require things in the US that I think are mandated. Again, for yeah. good reason, but not always maybe necessary. I didn't have to do any of those. So I had blood work. I had blood work twice. I think I had blood work early on. Maybe I want to say first trimester, 12-ish weeks. And she checked the R, what's it called? The R, like the R positive, you know, the blood. Oh, yeah, RH. Yeah, the RH. She checked like a full panel of like, blood stuff. Um, I, I had to do a, a urine sample, checking for you know bacteria. And then I think checking iron levels, all of those things, I know kind of pretty standard. I think I had to do those fasting. And then I did another one, you know, definitely probably third trimester to check as well. And I appreciated, I think again, with my twin pregnancy, which was a few years later, she was a bit more cautious to do a few more tests, but not the like standard glucose. Like I just did fasting blood work. I just always appreciated. I think if there was reason for concern, she followed through, but there was nothing ever done preemptively just because everyone has it done. So that was my prenatal experience. Postnatal, let's see. And again, I had nothing to really compare it to. Um, my daughter was born in the birth center in kind of a tub of water. And like first births go, it was very long and very hard. And then my husband and I both got to stay. There was like a, a, a queen size bed. You could labor in if you wanted to. I preferred to be in the tub. But after my daughter was born, the midwife, I mean, checked her and then checked me. Had to have a few stitches. And then uh, we just both got to sleep in the bed with our daughter. I mean, she was weighed and measured, but like never taken away. We had a meal there that night and then stayed the night. And my, my midwife came back to check, I mean, the uterus and bleeding. But I'm all of that I was doing well. I didn't have any other in, any other interruptions in the evening. Like no one came in to like... My, my, my midwife was on on site, so I could have gone to her yeah. or called her if I needed something. But it was just really lovely to like take a long, good long nap after you know seventeen hours of labor. Um, then the next morning, I mean, she checked me again, checked my daughter, checked kind of breastfeeding, and as long as I was using the bathroom, she had said you know regularly or once, she cleared me to go home. And so I went home, you know, less than twenty four hours. My daughter was born, I think it seven. So I went home probably the next morning around nine or 10. And then my midwife came to our house, I believe day two or three, again, to just to weigh our daughter, to check her, to check me, to kind of touch, you know, checked in with breastfeeding again, asked how I was feeling. And I had a bunch of questions because this was new to me. Like I was sweating, I was leaking milk. There was a lot that I didn't know early on. And she just kind of, it was part of like the practice, part of like what we kind of agreed to in the contract that she would come for, I think a three day or two or three day checkup and then a one week checkup and then a six week checkup, unless there was something else that was needed. So she was very big, but she didn't want me walking around the house doing a bunch of things. She would have loved if I would have stayed like in bed resting for two or three weeks. 
Oh, wow. But that's kind of like, I mean, <laughs> you think about that now over here. And it's like, no chance. I know. <laughs> and there's no, I didn't go to the pediatrician until after six weeks. So my midwife came back to do a six week appointment. Again, weigh my daughter kind of more, more check me really. She did a vaginal exam, kind of checked my uterus, asked if we had any other questions. And then, you know, said we can visit the pediatrician whenever we want to. And obviously if there were medical concerns or something was not, you know, going well with my daughter's health or my own, I would have sought out other medical care, but everything like really just went smoothly. So again, I, again, I have friends who talk about, you know, hauling the car seat to the pediatrician's office at day three, I think especially in California, (laughs) probably around the country, if you have a home birth or a birth in a birth center, I think you're legally required to get a a pediatrician's assessment, which again, I think probably, you know, is, is good practice. Is it a hundred percent necessary? I don't know. We don't, I don't, I never had to go to the Peter and I never had to go to the, the OB six weeks, you know, with my child or without my child, because it's just, it's a different yeah, kind of practice here. And so that's kind of been my standard kind of pre postnatal care. And then the other piece, I guess with the twins, it was a little different. She came more often actually. And that was your second pregnancy. That was my third pregnancy. Oh, okay. Second pregnancy was pretty standard as well. Uh, my son was actually born quicker we love second birth. <laughs> it was probably five <laughs> hours like from wake up with contractions to he was in my arms. And, and then I was home. So he was born, let's see, he was born in the water as well at the same birth center in Guatemala City. And again, I don't, I never want to like rattle off like birth just happens in five hours. Like I had a really great prenatal care. My, my midwife was very, again, not in a controlling way, but just really a big advocate of reminding me how important water was, how important it was to get rest, to put my feet up especially when you have another child at home, how important it was to get you know, just good nutrients. Again, not in a shaming way. I mean, I could have eat whatever I wanted, but just kind of reminding of the importance of like taking care of yourself and your body while you're making a baby. There was never any like fear, like you can't eat this or shouldn't eat that. Maybe it's a little bit more of like the European kind of model of like, yeah, everything in moderation is really okay. I mean, I was probably a little bit more caution cautious just because I know some of the US like, rules about soft cheese and, you know, turkey meat or, you know, deli meat about wine or whatnot. But I also appreciated some of the freedom of kind of just her confidence in like, you know, making good choices and trusting your body. So that, that allowed me to have like pregnancy. Just, I didn't have a lot of fear around, around pregnancy, around birth, around all of it. Mm. I, I think it's really wonderful. You said you had mentioned when you were when you gave birth at the birthing center and there was you know no one coming in. I mean, all I remember from my births is how frustrating it is when you finally get yourself all settled, you get baby settled, and then you try to drift off to sleep and then they come in to check your vitals. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like every couple of hours and you're like, can I just sleep a little bit? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and they're not quiet. It's like the knock, 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 and it's the open, and then it's the lights, and it's like, you know, you're just trying to get like that peace and quiet. So I can see how that's like really nice to have because I think that's one of the most frustrating things when your baby's first here. You're like trying to get a little bit of sleep, and as soon as you do, it's like someone's coming in with something. You know, <laughs> I have not been in a hospital have, with a baby in the U.S. So I don't actually know how that is. But I have heard enough to be like, oh, that sounds horrible. And I, I feel like I have deep respect, you know, for the medical process and know that there are times I think women or, you know, women who have just given birth and their babies really need that attentive medical care like right away. But I also think that's yeah. more the exception, not the norm. 
And so again, to have a care provider who had walked with me through my, I mean, every appointment was with her through my entire, entire prenatal process. Like she really knew, you know, just like knew my body, knew some of my own concerns or questions. And obviously then having, you know, the following births with her as well. She knew what my body was capable of, which parts of labor, you know, that I'm just not, (laughs) that I need more support in, or I don't enjoy. And just having a care provider who really cares and kind of knows me and help me kind of know like myself as well as, as a, as a woman or as a mother, again, that is such a gift. And I know that is not available to everyone. And so I think, again, if I would have had, you know, a lot of bleeding, if I would have had, you know, any kind of dizziness or lightheadedness, I mean, Hannah, my midwife really would have taken her cues from how she saw and observed, you know, me, I mean, I was eating, I was talking, I went to the bathroom, my body responded really well, I think, and that she kind of trusted that. And that helped me to kind of trust like, oh, I can go to sleep now. I'm going to hold my, hold my mm-hmm. baby next to me in the, you know, in the, the bed and like, and rest. But I know that is not the norm. And so. Yeah, it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's good in the way that not all of my pregnancies and deliveries were uncomplicated. I mean, they were for the most part, in other words, like, you know, we had a quick and easy birth for the most part, except for the first one. And we were able to go home and, you know, our baby didn't spend any time in the NICU or anything like that. But we did have some, I had some issues with bleeding with my baby number three and four mm-hmm. and baby number four had an arrhythmia and things like that. So stuff like that, of course, being in the medical field for me, I'm always worried about that. Like, oh, what if, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like you said, it is more or less the exception rather than the norm. But, you know, as, as, as you have more babies, there can be, you know, some increasing complications depending. For me, it was like just this with each birth, it was just more hemorrhaging than the last. And mm-hmm. it kind of just increases with how many kids that you've had. So for me, I don't, I mean, you probably handled it so well and you probably loved it for me. I'm like, oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's also, you know, my perspective from, you know, having babies over here. Mm-hmm. Only if my experience was only what your experience was, I would probably think differently too, you know? So how does the typical Guatemalan woman's, like, I know you were saying you could, you would explain a little bit as to like what the differences are for them. Right. Well, I mean, on one hand, I just think there are far less options in terms of hospitals, medical care. There's far less you know, access to information in terms of just reading and having you know, I think the U.S. idea, or maybe kind of a Western idea of having a birth plan, you know, I think part of it's cultural, part of it is having, you know, privilege to think through and plan out, have options and information. I think most Guatemalan women just, there's kind of this hope of, I just, I want to, I want to hold my baby. I want to have a healthy baby. Like, I don't care how it happens. I just want to have a healthy baby. Or there is still a lot of, I think, kind of power and authority that doctors are given as they should, but I think it's often... The, the, the patient or the birthing mother is not part of the decision process. They're often just told, you need a C-section. I'm going to schedule this because the baby's too big, because your water is low, because there's not a lot of options given like, well, your, your fluid is low. And so you have you know, a higher risk of these complications. We can wait a week and see what happens, or we can induce you now. Like That process of getting to be an active participant of the decision process, I don't think happens very often here. And so a lot of times Guatemalan women just don't have as many choices. And they're just kind of told, you have to have a C-section right now, today. Or they're told, like, like my sister-in-law had her, I believe, second daughter vaginally. And she was, I mean, you know, eight, nine pound baby, which for a smaller, you know, petite Guatemalan woman, that is a large baby. But it doesn't mean you can't 
birth the baby. And so the doctors think in order to like assist or help, like use like their elbow and arm, like on her, like, you know, abdomen, like above the baby's, you know, I guess it'd be butt to help push the Mm. baby down. Just a lot of like forceful, again, Mm. whether necessary or unnecessary, I'm not there to comment, but it just seems like forceful and often not kind of respectful birthing practices and not getting to have any kind of advocate with you. Um, Again, if you're in a private Guatemalan hospital, you can have your, again, pre-COVID, you can have your spouse or your mother-in-law or your aunt or whoever you want in the room. But in national hospitals, I mean, for decades, you just can't have anyone in there. And so it even gives the doctors and the medical staff a little bit more like power or privilege, like you don't have anyone to advocate for you, like a partner or a doula or anyone. And I think women who live in more rural settings, like there's no prenatal care. Like obviously women will know they're pregnant. They might make it to an OB to find out how far along they are if they're not sure of like their cycles or, but otherwise, like, I mean, there's just very limited prenatal access. There's been a lot of, a lot of work with midwife groups and kind of training and honoring kind of local midwives and really giving them the tools and kind of, you know, electronic travel Dopplers so they can kind of give women like accurate information about their body and about pregnancy and birth and menstrual cycles in areas where there's no access to clinics or hospitals. So again, there's probably a wide range in part because of just the disparity between the lack of resources between Guatemalan women who have, you know, resources to pay for a private doctor in kind of a fancy hospital in the city and women who live in very rural areas and have no health clinic or hospital anywhere close by. And so they might travel like in the back of like a pickup truck to like get to the national hospital or they would birth at home if there's no one, like no way to reach like an actual birthing hospital. Yeah. I was actually talking with somebody from who's living in Turkey Uh and she was saying that the C-section rate there was one out of two. Yeah. And I was like absolutely stunned. I was like it, 50%. So you have a 50% shot that you're going to end up with a C-section there. Yeah. And, you know, they don't really get much of a, you know, they don't get a say. And they just automatically go to C-section if anything, you know, even the littlest thing goes wrong. They're like, okay, C-section. Or, you know, oh, you're 40 weeks, you haven't gone into labor, C-section, you know. And I just found that fascinating because I think even here in the States that they're performing C-sections, you know, when they're not always 100%, you know, medically necessary. It might just be the woman wishing to have a C-section rather than a vaginal birth. And, you know, I think everybody's going to have their own opinion on that, but it's a major surgery. Yeah. You know, and recovery from that is is really intense and I'm sure any mom who's had a C-section will jump to talk about that, you know. And especially trying to manage, you know, your little tiny baby after having a, ma- a major surgery. I mean, I can't even imagine how difficult that is, you know. Yeah. So it's just wild that it's it's such a it's just something that they're so quick to jump on, you know. It's very similar here as well. I think I actually read, I think it's forty percent. And I think there's been a big push in the past ten years, kind of for ongoing education, really to empower women. Again, there are times I think it's medically necessary for the life of the mother or the baby, you want a wonderful, wonderfully trained OB doctor to to be able to do C-section. But I also think it is way overused and women aren't always given like accurate information. There's again, a lot of fear and there's not a lot of options given. It's just like, well, you have to have a C-section. I've had friends, even other foreigners who have been told by OBs like, well, your baby's too big. You have to have a C-section before even 
you know, exploring, we could try labor, let's say your body responds before kind of doing the least restrictive intervention beforehand, they're just told flat out, you have to have a C-section. And I understand if you have limited resources in a hospital, limited time, you know, with your staff or with your training, there is an element of like a C-section is fast. I mean, for the medical professional, it's obviously not right. fast and healing for, for the birthing mom and for the baby, you know, long-term. Right, exactly. Now, would you say that you were satisfied with your postnatal care as far as like how much you were seeing and how attentive they were? Yeah. And again, this is where I can't imagine being in the US because I do my friends and my sisters who have had babies there and how you're kind of expected to like take care of yourself at home and then get in the car with a car seat and your child and drive to the doctor's office. I just can't imagine doing that. I feel like I I really had the luxury of like getting to be at home with my baby and just figure out nursing and lots of like skin to skin time. And again, this is look different than more children you have because there are other right. kids, you know, the second and third yeah. time. But in terms of like the medical part of me needing to visit doctors or appointments, yeah, I just feel grateful that I was able to to be at home. And then we had friends who brought over meals. And I, I was going to add, I think, I mean, my husband's family is here, I mean, close by. And it is actually more common among Guatemalan families to actually live like with your family or, or near your family, like, you know, next door, or, like on the same street, like family yeah. really is like the strong social aspect. They are your security system, your insurance. And so families really swoop in. I mean, the mother-in-laws, the grandmother, the aunts, sister-in-laws, and so it is, it's not like you have to call and arrange and coordinate care, like your family's just there. And so mm -hmm. again, we live in a separate kind of city from my in-laws, but they're still close by. But in a typical, I think, Guatemalan family, you know, the, 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 the recently, you know, birthing mother, she would not be up making meals or vacuuming or sweeping because her family would kind of all be there offering to hold the baby, you know, like taking care of the kids, you know, making a meal um, because they just live a bit more communally in general. And I think, again, whether it's it's some fear or just some kind of kind of cultural practices, there are, I think, a lot of ideas around like taking care of, uh, you know, post postnatal care for a mom and like a recently, you know, a newborn baby. And so like Guatemalans are very sensitive to temperature. What I mean that like, not like, I mean, the weather here is like mild year round for the most part, but like they don't, w women are always given um, Guatemalan women, I mean, for the most part, like warm soups and teas, it would be very uncommon for like a Guatemalan woman to be given like, you know, to ask for iced tea or like ice cream or any kind of cold food. Like there's this idea, I think it's actually more in line with probably Chinese medicine that like a, a recently birth mother needs, needs warm, nourishing foods for herself, for her milk, for her baby. And again, whether that is rooted in science or not is a strong belief here. And so women are kind of cared for. A lot of times women will, will keep their head covered. Again, I did not do this, but it's very common. When you see women leave the national hospital after they've had a baby, they'll have their head kind of wrapped. I think it's the idea of like not letting cold in. Even again, if it's like 70, 80 outside, they'll have like their arms, their shoulders covered. And again, whether this helps or it's just kind of general practice, I don't know. Again, I did not do this because it was hot and I like had a nursing tank on. My mother-in-law, <laughs> the first time I was nursing my daughter, she came over and she's very polite, but I remember she whispered 
to my husband, like, ah, oh, Michelle's milk is going to get cold. She needs to cover up her shoulders uh. because I was like nursing my daughter with like a nursing tank on and, you know, nothing else on top. And, and again, I have lived here long enough to just kind of respect and hold like there are different ways to, to take care of, you know, uh, a nursing mom and a baby. And so it doesn't bother me in some ways I can kind of laugh and just, you know, kind of respect the differences they would be appalled that, you know, women in the US walk around with like shorts and a tank top and are drinking their iced tea, you know, or their decaf coffee. Yeah. While they're nursing a baby. That's that's so interesting. So have you found that breastfeeding is really encouraged there? Like do you feel like you had a lot of introduction to it, like even before your first was born, and then, you know, support afterwards as well? Yeah. I mean, I will say women breastfeed everywhere, all over. And so before I, I attended for a few medical clinics that are nonprofit and hosted, um, so it would not be uncommon to have a woman, like I remember I was translating for a dental clinic. And so the, the her son was in the dental chair, her older son getting like, you know, a cleaning. And the mom was sitting there next to the dentist, next to me, then nursing her like one-year-old and like her breast just exposed, nursing her baby, holding the hand of her other child. And no one like batted an eye. No one mm. uses like, what are they called? Uh, a cover. And again, there's nothing wrong with those. If that's how someone feels comfortable, I'm all for it. But I really, and again, my personality probably aligns with it. I just really embrace the freedom of like, my baby's hungry and I'm going to nurse and I feel okay with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I just, I mean, I nursed, especially my first, it was harder with the twins later on, but I nursed my first all, all over all the time. And I mean, again, walking around town in a restaurant, there's no such thing as like nursing rooms. I know I've been in one in, I think in the US in an airport. There aren't any of those here because you just nurse kind of wherever you are. Nursing was hard to figure out. It was definitely like a challenge. It's kind of a you know, steep learning curve with your first. And so I really am grateful if I didn't have my midwife, you know, her support and my mom came down, but not till six weeks later. And so just having another, you know, location consultant or a doula, like just someone who can be there in person to really like, help you and help your baby figure out the best latch. Like you kind of think this is natural. Most women nurse their babies, but it really is such a new and foreign skill. I don't think I, I wish I would have put a little bit more. I mean, you can't, you only, you only plan ahead so much, but I feel like my body kind of knew what to do during birth. And I read so much and kind of prepared for birth and kind of like delivery. And then I was like, Oh, but then the rest of this, like, you know, there's a, just a steeper learning curve in terms of figuring out postpartum care. I mean, for your baby nursing that I'm grateful. I had a midwife who would like come to my house to kind of like help me and support. Cause if I didn't have that, I can just see it being really, really hard and like overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, it is <laughs> right now. I kind of wanted to just dive quickly into is your oldest in school yet at all? Well, I mean, she was <laughs> pre COVID. Oh, right, right, right. Oldest yeah, I know is- it's, yeah, she started preschool here years ago, and it, we did a kind of a Spanish preschool for a few years, and then she switched to kind of an international school that's bilingual English and Spanish in first grade, and then and then COVID hit, so schools are mm-hmm. still closed in Guatemala, all okay. schools, private and public, since March 16th of 2020 until like oh wow. I mean, they they have never reopened until now. Oh, wow. I mean, so they're still closed. The Guatemalan school year starts in January and ends in October. Oh, interesting. My daughter's school is the on the American school calendar. So she starts in August, ends in June. But 
schools have been closed throughout the whole pandemic. So she's done online school, which again, I'm grateful for. She's done like, okay, you know, with her Zoom classes, but for a country that not everyone has access to internet or computers in their home, like there are kids who just don't have access to school and they haven't. We had pretty, we had a six months of pretty serious lockdowns and curfews, 4 p.m. curfews, you had to be inside your home, couldn't go outside, like not walking, not driving, only delivery vehicles and pharmacies. Mm-hmm. We had weekend lockdowns, which again was, I think, kind of to, to just prohibit people from gathering socially when we had our kind of peaks throughout the summer. So from, I think it was May until August, we had a weekend lockdown. So Friday night at 4 or 5 p.m., you had to be in your home and then you could not leave your home. I think it was until Monday morning. So, which again, I know in the US people are like, oh yeah, we're have, you know, lockdown or quarantine, but really it just means like restaurants and schools and places are closed, but you can leave and drive, you know, and go. We were having, you know, friends were doing drive-by birthday parties and going out like to parks, like really during these lockdowns in Guatemala, like you could not leave your house unless you had a medical note or you were um, like going to like, you know, a medical appointment, like, like, an, like going to the hospital, like an emergency, like there was nothing, everything was closed down except for delivery. It's like few restaurants and delivery vehicles would be out and pharmacies were open. There was grocery store delivery, but not on the weekends. Like it really, it was just really surreal to live through. How did they like lock down? Like how did they enforce that? Well, so, I mean like public parks, like were kind of like chained off. I mean, I mean, like, so there was like yellow tape around them. Um, we don't have public playgrounds really as much, but like public parks were all kind of, mm-hmm. you know, like plazas really. Like if you think of like European plazas, we're all kind of marked off. Police would kind of roam and there would be like fines if you were out. And again, there's a different cultural mindset where it wasn't as politicized. It was just like, again, when the government mm-hmm. says you can't you know, do this, everyone kind of goes like, well, this sucks, but we have to do it. Like there's the U.S. idea mm-hmm. of like, well, what about my rights and my individual freedoms? Like, that, that kind of cultural <laughs> attitude, although there are some good things I think come from it in terms of being creative and, you know, entrepreneurship, like good things that come from those cultural values, there's also really hard things. And so I think in a country like Guatemala, where the larger cultural value is like harmony and like working together and kind of a, a group kind of mindset of like, it does benefit public health, meaning that everyone just stayed home. Like no one, no one protested yeah. or pushed back because- like, I think there was genuine fear of coronavirus. There's not, I mean, we already have such a very, very fragile, like health system. People don't, people in normal times don't have access to ultrasounds or needed surgeries or insulin or appointments. And so there's, is a real kind of concern. If you get, if you get sick and need medical care, you most likely will not be able to, to get it. And so there is kind of a little bit more fear of like, I don't want to catch coronavirus for myself or my family. So for the most right. part, people just abided by it. And I mean, our airport was closed. So we had no, we had no incoming flights, like no tourists. And we usually have a pretty large tourist market, especially during the summer. A lot of travelers, cruises. We had no tourists come in. So the hotel, the service industry was just kind of was shot. I mean, it was everything just closed down. It was really, really surreal. Mm-hmm. And then in October, a lot of the closed down orders were lifted, so restaurants could open again, like outside but socially distant. Parks could open, you know, again, they're outside. So there were, there were some restrictions in place, but a lot of businesses 
were able to open again. The airport opened. You know, now we had, you know, you have to have a COVID test in order to enter. You have to also have a COVID test in order to leave to fly back to the U.S. But the irony is going back to schools, your question, schools are still closed. They have not yet figured out or haven't placed enough kind of value on getting schools open in part because teachers aren't vaccinated. I mean, I'm sure there's many, many mm-hmm. layers, but it's yeah. been frustrating living here, knowing that like we went through so many like months of lockdown and they were really, they were effective. Our numbers stayed low, but then I think businesses put pressure obviously to open and kind of get the economy going again, which is so important, Mm -hmm. but then schools just kind of lagged. And so schools are still closed. So the irony is now you can fly to Guatemala to visit. You can be a tourist. Masks are still required hundred percent of the time. Anytime you're out of your house, indoor or outdoor, but schools are not open. So you can walk around town, you mm. can get ice cream, you can go to a restaurant, you can go to the gym, but you can't go to school yet. So that's so wild. It is. Uh, it's so crazy how it varies so much from country to country. Is the vaccine rollout happening there? Like how how quickly is that happening? It It is happening. We have the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's happening very, very slowly. We're a country of about 17 million people. And I believe the latest numbers I saw yesterday were that we have vaccinated half a million, so 500,000 people. <laughs> so wow. I think it's about 2% if, I, if oh I'm doing my numbers kind of right. So, wow. I mean, and again, like my husband and I have numerous conversations. Again, he's Guatemalan and um, he was able to get vaccinated actually with our clinic staff because we have a health clinic in kind of one of these rural, rural areas about an hour and a half from where we live. And so health, health professionals, as they should be, were the first ones to get vaccinated and anyone who's working in kind of the health field or having direct contact with patients. And I think they've lowered the age now to anyone over 50, but just the infrastructure to get the vaccines to the like local health centers. They know that there's no online appointments. Like you have to fill everything out kind of by hand. You have to wait. A lot of people like just can't get to the health centers where the vaccines are, or, you know, they just don't want to yet. There's, I think some, you know, natural mistrust of, you know, of, of an unknown vaccine. There hasn't been a lot of information. So it's just a really slow process. And my husband has said, I mean, he's equally frustrated that schools aren't open, but he said in general, like Guatemalans are kind of used to things take longer here. And I'm like, who can we write an email to? you know, I want to call someone, I want to complain to the manager, I want to like, put some pressure to change something. And he's kind of like, this is just how things are. Like he's watched his whole life, you know, technology, new programs, they, they, they get launched in the US or in Europe, and they hear about them here. But it takes years for them to roll out and like actually get here. So I think in general, for better right. or worse, a lot of Guatemalans know like, well, we're just, you know, we're going to be patient, we're going to kind of wait this out. My sister-in-laws both have kids in school and I'm always like, aren't you frustrated? Like schools aren't open. Kids are still online. This isn't good for their like emotional and social health. Like we should be like fighting back or like working toward a solution. Who can we be talking to? And they're kind of like, yeah, it's like, it sucks. And this is just how it is. And that's kind of the general, again, not from everyone, but the general attitude when I talk to Guatemalan parents is kind of like, this is just how it is. Like, and it drives me crazy inside. And also I can kind of respect like there is, I think in the US, for better or worse, kind of a false sense of control that like, if we do the right thing, if we make the right choices, call the right people, write the email, like we can make it happen. There's like a, 
an implied controller privilege of like, we can kind of get what we need for ourselves or our kids or our families. And I think there's a lot of privilege in that. And there's a system that kind of works for that in the U S but here things just don't work that way. And so it's just a different way of like, you know, kind of living, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. So I wanted to ask you one more thing too, that I forgot about in the postpartum care. Now, I know this might not apply to you directly because again, you're, you know, more or less like an expat, but what is the standard leave for both the woman and, you know, the partner after birth, you know, when it comes to work? What's the average? That's a great question. Women who work in any kind of like professional kind of government, business, office, like any kind of legal office, professional work get 90 days of maternity leave. And that's 90 days kind of in total. You can take a month before your due date. You can take a week before your due date. And then, you know, three, you know, two and a half months after you kind of get to choose what that looks like, but it's 90 days. I think for men, unfortunately, I want to say it's like one or three days. It's like very, very low. I work with, a, you know, I work for, it's a U.S. Guatemalan nonprofit. But so I got, I mean, the, the 90 days. I think I took a week or two before the, my kids were born. And then I took three months post, or two and a half months postpartum. And I could, I, you can combine it with like vacation time. So one of mine was around Christmas and then I extended it. And I believe it's full pay. Uh, maybe it's half. It's It's definitely paid. I can't remember if it's. 75% or full pay for those 90 days. I think it's full pay. Again, the caveat is most women, I wish I had the percentages, but not all women are working in a bank or a school or like a professional job where they have the kind of national social social security benefits through EGS, it's called IGS. And so for a lot of women who are either, I mean, home full-time kind of like taking care of kids as a, as a, as a homemaker or are like working like in agriculture or I mean, in, in fields kind of farming, those women don't get any time off. Like there's no paid, you know, mm-hmm. so, and that's right. probably more the norm, but for women again, who are in the workforce and at a legal kind of professional job, get 90 days. That's, I mean, so that's pretty much the same as, as we have here. So I wanted to, one more thing I wanted to go back to was you said there's not a lot of like parks for kids there. No, this was a big kind of shift, again, coming from the US where, you know, we have so many community like playgrounds, like they're just open, anyone can go play at them, right? Yeah. So I, we don't, there are lovely playgrounds and like play areas, structures, but they're all private, meaning they're usually attached to like a restaurant Mm. or to like a private park. So you have to pay to use them and then you get access to the playground in them. But there's no, I should say no, there are very few like public community playgrounds. And I think there's a lot of reasons. One, like security, like when you live in a country with limited resources, when you have like nice, maybe metal structures or like, it's the same reason why people don't leave out, at least here, I think in other parts of the world too. Like if you have an outdoor restaurant and you have outdoor like tables and chairs, you don't leave it outside all night because someone could take it. Mm -hmm. Like you bring all those things inside. So there's no outdoor like seating or like tables or chairs, everything is like brought out for a restaurant and then brought back in. Like nothing's left on the streets out here, including, I mean, even structures like playgrounds. 
although there's a community mindset in terms of family, there's not, I think, as much shared trust and or shared kind of community mm-hmm. budgets of like who get, who takes care of public playgrounds and parks. We have a lot of plazas. If you think of like maybe like parts of Spain or Italy, kind of like fountains in the middle and like lovely kind of like parks where there's like a bench and like cement and kids can or cobblestones and kids will will run and people walk their dogs and have coffee or ice cream and sit in the plaza. There's a fountain. Like there's a lot of those mm-hmm. kind of spaces, like green, I guess not green, but like, you know, urban park places, not like playgrounds, how you or I are thinking about from the US. Mm-hmm. Like we have a playground in our neighborhood because it's a private like kind of condominium. And so there's a private playground like for the residents who live inside the neighborhood, but like someone from the outside can't just walk in to use the playground with their family. Right. So what are some of the, we can finish on this now. What Mm -hmm. are some things that you have been surprised about uh, while living in Guatemala and what's been your favorite, you know, aspect of living there? In the U.S., I mean, again, I was a teacher. I grew up in the U.S. I think there is this kind of ideology like that we are doing it right. And maybe it's very egocentrical. And no one says it directly, but it's kind of implied when we talk about, you know, U.S. parenting and schools and ideas that like either we're doing it right or we're looking for the right answer. Like we're looking for the best way to do it. I mean, as a culture collectively, um, and I hear it in friends of mine, mm-hmm. you're trying to decide about the best school, the best swim class, the best, you know, speech and language therapist or the best after school activities, like kind of this idea that we're doing it right kind of with parenting or and I think living outside of the U.S. for one, you know, in a different country, culture, and then I mean, with that, the community where we live in Antigua, there's a really large international community as well. So a lot of Europeans, um, other expats from really all over the world, primarily probably Europe, the U.S., uh, maybe Australia. And so there's just a unique kind of blending of perspectives and cultures. And so as a parent, again, I have never parented in the U.S., my kids have not been born there. I haven't raised them there. Obviously, I'm from the U.S., so I have my own kind of cultural lens. But just realizing there are so many different ways to do things. And even accepting, like, there's actually a lot of ways the U.S. does things that actually maybe really aren't that great or aren't that, you know, aren't that best or ideal. We've just kind of all accepted, like, this is how, it, how we do it in the U.S. And so I think it's been surprising just being a parent outside of the U.S. and really kind of having just a broadened perspective on the range of ways families do things. And I have less of an inclination of being like, oh, that's right and that's wrong, or that's better and that's worse. I think mm-hmm. I, I had more of that in, when I first came down, but I really have, I think, just shifted kind of over the years and kind of loosened, I don't know, some cultural expectations. Like for instance, kids here go to bed really late. It's probably more similar to like Spain or maybe Argentina, countries where families eat dinner late. They kind of have family time in the evening. And I, I think initially I would often think like, oh, that's so bad for their kids. They're not getting to bed early. And again, I have read the studies. I love, you know, the science and the research of like, but I know, you know, kids get better REM cycles and they and they sleep better when you get them to bed by seven, seven thirty. But also I I sometimes wonder, like, but maybe no one has studied yet, like the positive benefits of the social and family connections that happen in a family when you're together and the kids are at the table with adults and everyone's laughing and eating and talking until eight or nine or nine thirty or 10, you know, there's been a lot of those kind of shifts over the years. 
you know, and also there's just not as many options here. I have talked before, like, you know, we have a great after school, there's like kind of one swim kind of instruction area in town. And so I've taken all my kids there for swim lessons. Now, did I research the best mm-hmm. one? Did I like have anything to compare it to? Nope. Like that was the only one. And I think in the US, there are so many options for preschool and for food and for all kinds of things as a parent. For everything. <laughs> yeah. And I think, again, it's under the guise of like, we want to provide the best for our pa- or best for our stupid kids. And we want to like research the best. And, and I'm all for a healthy kind of comparison and, you know, com- competition in terms of capitalism. But there's like an extreme where it, I think as a parent, it kind of becomes this overwhelming, like I have to make the best choice for my kids. And so I've just found a lot of freedom, sometimes frustration as well. Don't get me wrong. When there, there really are just less options here. And again, I say that carefully because I think there are probably a lot of families here who would love to be able to afford to send their kids to, to swim lessons and, and they can't afford that. That's not even a realistic option when you're just trying to put food on the table, like make sure your kids have enough to eat. Um, so there really is a very a huge disparity in a lot of ways. But as a parent, from yeah. where I'm coming from, I just, I have found kind of just, you know, like I said, a lot of freedom being like, well, there's one swim, one swim instruction class or thing. And that's where, that's where our kids are going to go. Is it the best one? I don't know. Do they have the best model? Probably not, but our kids are going to get exposure to a pool and that's great. And so that has just, I think, been a, a surprising kind of aspect of like getting to live here that I think in some ways has made parenting a little bit easier. And, and I, again, I, I want my kids to grow up with a you know, healthy and well-rounded perspective and I've just had a little bit, I think, different view that like, well, this is this is what we have access to. And so this is what's going to work. You know, here in the US, obviously, like when it comes to strollers, it's like, okay, which one of these 200 strollers would you like to choose for your child? And, you know, all the questions mm-hmm. that I typically get on my channel are always like, well, which one's the best? Well, and it's like, well, you know, I mean, they're all fine. <laughs> you know, they're all going to do what they're meant to do, which is get your child from point A to point B. <laughs> you know, while I know that some might be better than others or have different features or what have you, it's it can be really overwhelming, especially as a first-time mom to be like, well, which one of these, you know, millions of products do I actually need to have a successful, you know, first experience with my baby? And it's like, you really don't need very much. <laughs> is the answer, right. right? So I think that's, yeah, I think you're you're so right about that. And I'm sure that's been actually really freeing <laughs> to just not have to have that many options, you know? And I, you know, and I think part of being in the US, because there are so many options, and there's so many things you're encouraged to buy, I always come back to like, again, st- we have a stroller, strollers are great, as you can agree. But there's always coming back to like, what is what is underneath this for me? What am I trying what am I trying to buy? What am I actually feeling? Like I want to protect my kid. I want to, I want to feel like a good mom. Like I feel like there's often feelings and maybe questions or insecurities or doubts or things inside that we feel mm-hmm. as maybe new parents or as moms. And marketers or marketing, you know, officials or directors are so great because they know that they're trying to help us, you know, alleviate a feeling by buying a product. When really, I think, I mean, gosh, right. I could encourage you know any new mom or any old mom, like just that so much of, I think, the power in parenting really comes from taking care of yourself and knowing, gosh, what are the things inside of me that, that I'm struggling with that are overwhelming for me, that are hard, that are triggering, 
And then, you know, making decisions kind of after you figure those things out, because then it just becomes a stroller and not, you know, reflection of my parenting. It just becomes, I have to have an item to push my kid around the zoo. Right. No, I think you're, I think you're right on with that. And I do think, I mean, of course, with this whole like new direction I'm going with Instagram, well, and then eventually deleting Instagram here, I think having been in this, this period of time where basically a lot of marketing has gone from, you know, magazines and television to, you know, social media, right? Where there's influencers like me, for example, who for a few, you know, for seven years, I had this blog where I was just like, you know, blogging, you know, recipes or just my experiences. And then, oh my goodness, now we have these social media platforms where you can start, you know, working with brands to sell things. And I think it's gotten, this has kind of been my my thought process over the past year and a half, of course, with COVID. It's like things have gotten wildly out of control. And it's like exactly what you said, where it's like you might be dealing with, you know, postpartum depression, anxiety, you know, whatever it might be, which so many of us experience. And then saying, okay, well, you know what might make me feel better is if I have, you know, X, Y, and Z products that help me be a better mom. I think that would make me less anxious. And then you like, you know, and you're doing like these crazy, you know, swipe up buys, you know, in the middle of the night when you're nursing your baby because you think it's going to make you a better mom. And in reality, like you said, really getting to the root of like how you're feeling and what's causing those feelings and knowing that you actually don't need really anything. to be a good mom, you just need to, you know, be engaged. And that's really it. You don't need all these other things, you know? Right. Yeah. I was, I was going to say there are two, see, I think there's two for anyone who's interested, like to kind of, you can't travel overseas right now. You can't maybe raise your kids out of the U S there's two books, maybe three that I've read that have been so eye-opening just about parenting, like across the globe, like global practices and parenting Mm. outside of the U S Maybe you've read them. One, I think, is How Eskimos Keep Their Babies Warm. I haven't read that. And it's like eight or nine different countries and looks at practices, again, that you or I might be shocked about, like that, you know, again, letting kids stay up until like nine or 10 at night all the time, or like leaving kids out like in extremely cold temperatures. And so that that is one that I read years ago, How Eskimos Keep Their Babies Warm. The other one is written by a journalist and a PhD, let's see, researcher called Parenting Without Borders. And and that, that one's a newer one. Again, it looks at things I think you've even like written about before, kind of looking at Norwegian and Swedish and Finnish, like school practices. Yeah. But how like the US, we really don't rank that well globally, like on academic performances. No. And we kind of are pushing more and more like you know, academics early and kids reading and writing at five and how a lot of like yeah. the really the countries that have like more outdoor time and like recesses, multiple recesses actually do better, you know, like th- that's not new research, but I think a lot of parents or right. maybe schools or I don't know who was making all the decisions kind of forget that sometimes. And then the classic one, I don't know if it came out, gosh, maybe 10 years ago, bringing up Bebe, the American. Oh yeah, I read that one. That one's good. Yeah. It was just, I read it before I even had kids, but it was so eye-opening to be like, oh, like these are French values that the U.S. doesn't have at all. And there's other right. ways to kind of feed and to raise kids. And it was so eye-opening to me. I remember because I read it, I think I read it the first time before I had kids. And then I read it again when my daughter was young. And again, you know, I mentioned 
the swim lesson place. I was like, well, she's almost two. I better get her like, you know, water safe, water, you know, and, and yeah. get used to the water. And so we put her in swim lessons and she hated it. She cried. She was anxious. And I felt so conflicted, like, well, I know it's good for her to like get used to the water, but also she seems really uncomfortable. And I remember I read in that right. book, again, it was just a, you know, a comment, but the author said in France, they don't teach kids to actually swim until they're six or seven. Like, it's just not even an expectation. And I understand families don't have pools, may need to have different, you know, practices, but it just was eye-opening to me, like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe she doesn't have to learn how to swim right now. There's life vests and floaties. We're not, we don't live by a pool or a lake. Like, She's going to be fine. And sure enough, she, you know, we, we didn't push her into the water. She was always really anxious around the pool. I know not all kids are. Some kids jump right in, but she was very anxious and would just kind of play above water, never put her head underwater until, gosh, she was probably six, almost seven. She asked to do swim lessons again and she felt comfortable. She understood what to do. She wanted to swim and she was ready. She did it. Right. But I think, you know, the U.S. way is not the only way, I guess, is my big kind of like point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, you know, the more I kind of look outwards and, you know, read some of these books that I kind of, I don't even know what the first book I had read was as far as like the Scandinavian culture, but I just became like really just in awe of, you know, everything they do as far as parenting and, you know, with their children in the schools. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, wow, you know, like you don't realize what you're missing out on until you start like really looking into it. And you're like, wow, things are so different. I mean, all the way around the world. But, you know, specifically, I've just really loved learning about, you know, the Scandinavian culture and, you know, how they really value, you know, outdoor play and just the family time and getting cozy inside their homes. I mean, it's just such a wonderful way of living. And every time, you know, we've gone there just a few times and every time we have, it's like life slows down there. It's like you feel like everything's in slow motion. And especially when you have children, it's like you realize how fast life goes. And it's like, what are we really doing? You know, are we like living to work or working to live, you know? And I feel like here in this country, in the US, we are most certainly, you know, living to work as opposed to, you know, working to live. And it's something I think that's just like ingrained in our society as a whole. But yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. It's just it's just so interesting. It's really fascinating to hear about the different the ways that everybody lives in the different countries. So, Michelle, this was really great. I really appreciate you taking the time to tell us about your experience in Guatemala. Is there anything you wanted to add before we go? No, and we didn't touch really on the twin birth, but that is a whole other <laughs> a whole other kind of it was a different kind of prenatal and postnatal care just because there was two of them, but but I think that's it. Yeah, no, that's one. This has been really great. So thank you again for taking out the time. We really appreciate it. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.